Hey friends, Jason here. This is the teaching episode for Sunday, June 21st, which is Father's Day. Uh, a bit more about that in a moment. Uh, but uh, before I get there, a couple other things that you should know about. Uh, the first thing, we're very excited about this. Uh, with COVID going on, uh, we still don't believe it's appropriate for us to, for us to gather in Studebaker 112 yet. Uh, as we try to understand from public health officials, local officials, uh, what the right call is. However, uh, we've got a solution that we think is appropriate for COVID, and it's coming up on Wednesday night, July 1st. We're having an all-church gathering at uh, Four Winds Field, the home of the South Bend Cubs, right across the railroad tracks from our Studebaker 112 home. Uh, we love this, and we think that it's a way that we can be together that's appropriate um, as COVID continues to spread. So uh, we've got like the whole stadium. I mean, we, we won't need all of it, but it's large enough that we can actually spread out and observe six feet of distance between individuals or families. Uh, so you can find some seats and then, you know, maybe keep a row uh, empty in front of you or behind you and seats from side to side. Uh, we'll be outdoors. And we understand from people who are studying COVID that uh, outdoor spaces are safer than indoor spaces and make it much harder for COVID to spread. Uh, in spite of that, we're still asking everyone uh, to wear face masks. Uh, and when you walk in, we'll want you to have those on. And you'll wear them as long as you're moving around. But once you find your seats, you can take them off. And then um, gates will open at 6. And the gathering begins at 6.30 p.m. And we'll have a full-on gathering. We'll have songs and prayers, liturgy and teaching and a long-awaited chance to be together. Uh, in fact, this will be the first time that all of South Bend City Church has had a chance to be together at one gathering uh, in a very long time. I'm trying to think this probably goes back to, gosh, April of 2017 was probably the last time before we had to add additional gathering times to make room for everyone. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, man, um, the history gets lost on me. But we have a chance on, on Wednesday night, July 1st. So again, gates open at 6 p.m. Uh, the gathering begins at 6.30 p.m. And you can find details on our Facebook page. Uh, we are really looking forward to seeing you there. Uh, that's coming up. Also, if you're not aware, uh, every Sunday during COVID, in addition to the teaching episode on the podcast, or if you prefer, the teaching film on Vimeo that you can find with the link in these episode notes, uh, in addition to that, we've been going live on social media, and uh, right now what we're doing is taking the opportunity on Sunday mornings uh, specifically to listen and learn from black members of our community as they reflect with us on resources from the list of resources that we released for a church that wants to fight for black lives. And so, uh, so we put this big resource list out there, and uh, I really hope that you are seizing the chance uh, to learn and then to ask what steps uh, you have to take as we uh, work to build a world that's more equitable for black brothers and sisters. Um, so the, the list is out there, but we thought beyond that, let's not just publish the list and then, and then kind of move on in our life together. Uh, and so last week, for example, uh, you can go and you can still see the video on Instagram and Facebook. I spoke with uh, Paul and Stephanie, Paul Singleton and Stephanie Steele. And we reflected on uh, Austin Channing Brown's I'm Still Here. And then this week, the same day that this episode is coming out, uh, I'm really looking forward to learning more about our local context. And we're going to talk with Bianca Torado and Pam Blair, who are going to help us begin to make sense of a report released on the racial wealth disparities right here in South Bend, uh, which I think is especially important because... Um, a lot of us get, like, I think almost all of our news these days uh, at the national level. And while that's certainly important, uh, it, it's also easy to lose sight of the fact that, that 
racial injustice is also a local reality. And it's something that we have a part in, in challenging and working against locally to try to build a, a more equitable future right here in South Bend. So uh, we've got a couple of insightful voices that are going to share with us. And you can catch it live at 9.30 a.m. on Instagram. Uh, that's Eastern Time. And uh, 10 a.m. on Facebook. Uh, however, those videos will be posted after we get them done. And so really anytime you want, you can go back and look at those. And I'd highly encourage you to check that out. Uh, now, today's Father's Day. And uh, we know, uh, like Mother's Day, this can be a complicated holiday. Whether um, you're a father yourself in one capacity or another, um, whether that's uh, in a traditional sense or uh, could be fostering or adoptive or like honorary, um, there's lots of ways that fathering shows up in the world. Uh, we know it can be complicated for people who carry that title in their life. And it can be also complicated for people who are sons or daughters. Um, and so we want to celebrate and rejoice and um, cheer for the fathers in our church. We also want to name the complexity and um, make space for whatever this day holds for you. Uh, I found this blessing. Um, it's a blessing for fathers, a prayer by someone named Kirk Lodman, adapted by Deborah Mooney. And I thought as a way of marking today, I would just share this with you because I think this, this blessing has a way of making room for all that I just described. And so this Father's Day, uh, let me share this with you. Let us praise those fathers who have striven to balance the demands of work, marriage, and children with an honest awareness of both joy and sacrifice. Let us praise those fathers who, lacking a good model for a father, have worked to become a worthy and virtuous one themselves. Let us praise those fathers who, by their own account, weren't always there for their children, but who continue to offer those children, now grown, their love and support. As well, let us pray for those fathers who've been wounded by words and actions of their children. Let us praise those fathers who, despite marital discord, have remained in their children's lives. Let us praise those fathers whose children are adopted and whose love and support has nurtured a thriving life. Let us praise those fathers who, as stepfathers, freely choose the obligation of fatherhood and earned their stepchildren's love and respect. Let us praise those fathers who've lost a child to death and continue to hold the child in their heart. Let us praise those men who have no children, but who cherish the next generation as if they were their own. Let us praise those men who have fathered us in their role as mentors, guides, and foster fathers. Let us praise those men who are about to become fathers. May they openly delight in their children. And let us praise those fathers who have died, but who live on in our memory and whose love continues to nurture us. Uh, whatever Father's Day means to you today, friends, uh, we are thinking of you and we look forward to being together on July 1st. I hope that we'll see you there. Uh, that being said, uh, here's uh, the next step in our teaching series on the book of Philippians. If, if there's one place growing up where I felt a pretty consistent connection with God, it wasn't church and it wasn't like bedtime devotionals or something like that. It was a camp uh, not too far from here in Southwest Michigan. It was a church camp and every summer of my life growing up, I probably spent more time at that camp than I did at home. And I would show up as a camper and I would show up as a volunteer and then I came on staff and worked maintenance and did a whole bunch of stuff there. And uh, it was typical summer camp in all sorts of ways. And so there was the dining hall and there were cabins and there were hikes in the woods and there were games. And then there was the devotional or spiritual aspect of it, 
where we really intentionally turned our attention to God. And uh, maybe that meant singing songs or studying the Bible, or maybe it meant hearing from somebody who had a perspective to share or a preacher who had a sermon. Uh, it often meant that we'd go to the campfire at the end of the night, this big, big ring of uh, split logs around a massive fire that I believe they soaked with gasoline earlier in the day. <laughs> so we'd have this big, big fire and it was far enough from, from any kind of lit up town that when you looked up to the sky, you had a really good view of the stars. And I remember in particular that campfire being a very special place to pay attention to that awareness that some of us feel more than others of something beyond all of this or someone beyond all of this. We would do things that uh, maybe seem kind of cheesy depending on what lens you view them through, but were really quite beautiful. Like I remember we would do this thing, maybe a hundred campers, we could be middle schoolers or high schoolers sitting around the fire and we'd look up at the stars and uh, one of the counselors or leaders would count to three. And on the count of three, we would all looking up at the sky, yell as loud as we could, I love you. And then we'd just sit in the silence for quite a while really and try to listen. Now, again, like I don't, I don't know if you relate to that experience, if it sounds beautiful or cheesy, but I'll just tell you having lived inside that experience, uh, it was a really profound and beautiful way to, to learn to relate to the mystery that we call God and to live a life with that experience in the background of, of everything has been really meaningful for me. I'm really grateful for it. And there was one day there uh, at that campfire where I heard something back. Now, I don't mean like an audible word. Uh, maybe you've had experiences like this or maybe you've heard them described. I just mean I had a very, very clear sense that something had risen up within me that wasn't quite just me. And there was a, a message or an idea or an impulse or to use a word uh, that a lot of us use, a calling. And the calling quite specifically was not just like to live my life in relationship to this mystery that we kept talking about with God and Christ and following Jesus, but to actually live my life in vocational service to this mystery. Uh, but back then we would have used words like, um, like giving your life to full-time ministry or something like that. Not a big fan of all that language because it's got some problems in it, but whatever. Like point being like my life, my work, my vocation in the world is going to be very, very tied in to paying attention to this mystery and inviting others to do the same. And of course, the, the vehicle that I knew for that at that time, and actually the vehicle for that that I'm a part of now is church. And so what I, I heard this sort of this impulse rise up within me about giving my vocation, my life to that. And then the category that my brain had for it was church. And in the moment, I was uh, a little bit excited, a little bit anxious about what that would mean. But I remember getting home and just immediately shelving that very clear sense that I had. And when I had been at camp and felt that thing, I talked to my counselors about it and we prayed about it and I felt very affirmed in it. But I got back to my life apart from camp and it just, uh, it went from being the center of what I was thinking about and imagining for myself to being completely removed from how I thought about my future. And if I'm being honest, I, like, I don't think it was that I'm afraid of sacrifice. I don't think it was uh, fear that it might be hard or that it might be in swimming upstream. I think the, the main reason that I shelved it was because I got back to my everyday life and I thought about the experiences I had had in church. And honestly, the question inside me was, how could that, how could giving your life to, to this sort of package of ideas and experiences and practices, 
How could it matter? It just seemed honestly sort of irrelevant and uninteresting. Uh, when you're young and you're, you're passionate and you, you want your life to matter and you want to make a difference in the world and you want to take the best that you have and give it towards something important, like you have all those desires, right? Especially in that season of life in high school and you move into college. So I have all these desires to put all my energies into something that's really beautiful and something that matters. And I had this sense of calling, but I looked at it and I said, I don't know how beautiful that is. I don't know if that matters. Maybe you felt that way too, uh, about faith or following Jesus or spirituality or, or church, or I don't know how you wanna like categorize this whole package of things, but maybe you felt that way too, especially right now, especially when the world is breaking and burning in all sorts of ways when there's an urgency for us to bring our best to the world, to deal with the worst that we are seeing in the world, whether it's um, the difficulties around COVID or the racial injustice that we are being confronted with right now. Like you wanna bring your best to it and you wanna do something that matters and, and maybe you have felt or wondered like, how could this thing that we talk about, God, God's life in Jesus, the invitation of Christ, gospel, like, like how could that matter in the midst of all of these really, really pressing things. Uh, I asked that question back then, and it comes back to me from time to time. And since I've been there before and I thought you might be there right now, I thought it'd be an interesting question to bring to the letter to the Philippians that we're looking at. So I, I wanna notice something with you, and we've, we've alluded to this already as we've looked at the text, but uh, as we move uh, into chapter two and even into chapter three, uh, You'll notice, like for Paul, like whether you agree with him or not and whether you understand it or not, it's clear that this experience that he has had in Christ matters. Let me give you a few examples. So for example, in chapter two, verse 17, he's writing to this church knowing that his life is being spent on their behalf, specifically on behalf of their experience of Christ and them pursuing Christ. His life is being poured out, given up. He might even be executed by the Romans because he's been going around planting churches. And he says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. Like even if this thing uses me up and there's nothing left of me, I'm glad if, if me being used up means that your faith is growing and that you're a part of this. Or how about a little bit later here in uh, chapter two, verses 29 through 30, he's talking about a friend who has worked with him named Epaphroditus. And he's about to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippian church so he can spread some, communica spread some communication with them and update them on Paul. And he says of Epaphroditus, he says, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. So the dude almost died for this thing. And Paul doesn't seem to have any problem with that, although he says you should honor him because of it. But it's almost as if this thing is worth even the kind of risks that might cost you your life, not just for Paul, but also for Epaphroditus. Or how about a little bit later? So in chapter three, Paul lists this resume of very impressive pursuits of the ego. And in his case, the, the venue for the pursuits of the, eagle, of the ego is his religious pedigree. And so there's a lot about his heritage as a Jewish man and his relationship to his Jewish religion. But I think the right way to read that is less about, about being Jewish and more about the ways that these function for the ego for him. So he's built a very impressive resume. But then he says uh, in chapter three, uh, verse uh, seven, whatever were gains to me for the ego, that is, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. 
I consider them garbage. And by the way, the word he uses there is a little more crass than garbage. Uh, it's a word that I probably shouldn't say here. And then he says that I may gain Christ. So again, whether you agree with Paul or not, or whether you understand Paul or not, it's clear for him like this mystery of Christ and the invitation uh, th that we hear in Christ is, is worth everything. It relativizes everything. It calls for everything. Uh, for him, it, it matters. Uh, it seems clearly worth it. Now, if we're gonna talk about this, let me remind you, like when we say Christ, we're not talking about a product that's just competing with a bunch of other products, and hopefully this product is better than the other products. And we're not talking about some just brand of religion that's just competing with other brands of religion trying to prove that it's better than all the rest. And we're not talking about like some magic spell or incantation that does some kind of voodoo. And we're not talking about some team that can win or lose against other teams. And we're not talking about uh, some banner that you can wave in a culture war, even though Christ gets used in all of those ways. And maybe you've been burned by seeing Christ used in all those ways. Or maybe the reason you shrug your shoulders or roll your eyes when you hear preachers talk about the value of Christ or the surpassing worth of Christ or the fact that Christ matters. Maybe the reason you get frustrated with that is because you've seen Christ treated like a product or a banner to wave or a team that could win or lose. But, but if you read these texts and you, and you try to get into the experience that Paul is describing when he talks about Christ, he's not talking about those kinds of things. Remember what we just looked at last week when we looked at that hymn, they call it the Kenosis hymn, the hymn about Christ, uh, whose mind we are called to have in our relationship with one another. And we read there that God, uh, that it was in the very nature of God to not grasp the privilege of being God, but rather to make himself a servant, being found in human likeness. Now, we've talked about this in our history as a church, but let me like bring it up again for Paul. Uh, the experience of Christ was that God has somehow married God's self to matter to this world that we see around us. God has somehow married God's self to humanity in this Christ experience. This is why Paul then goes around blowing up all of the categories that he sees that have divided the insiders from the outsiders and the right from the wrong. And he, he is a part of, of forging this new and unexpected and sort of universal community where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, because if, if God has married God's self to humanity, it seems that Paul is now roaming around the ancient world, discovering God lurking in his neighbors and his sisters and his brothers. It has transformed his way of seeing and being in the world. Uh, this reminds me of um, one of the mantras, not of South and City Church, although it probably could be, but one of the mantras of the Jesuits, uh, an order of Christian brothers who've been around for quite some time and have done really good and beautiful work in the world. Uh, by the way, one of the reasons I'm a fan of the Jesuits is because it's like any time I stumble into some thinking or philosophy or theology that just like lights me up with its beauty and its power and its truth, uh, it just seems like again and again, I find it coming from Jesuit voices. So I'm just kind of confessing my affinity here. A bit of a fan, to be honest. Um, but whether it's uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who uh, in the 1800s was thinking about the power and the beauty of setting alongside one another his observations about the evolutionary origins of human life alongside his deeply grounded faith in God the Creator, whether it's uh, Teilhard de Chardin or whether it's Father Boyle out there in LA with Homeboy Industries, who has done profound and really redemptive work 
uh, especially with gang members in LA, like it's, it's hard to not be inspired by the work of many Jesuits. And one of their mantras that they carry with them is simply this, finding God in all things. Finding God in all things. Now, this isn't like some sloppy pantheism. Uh, it affords God God's own category for sure, but it also, I think, capitalizes on the same insight that Paul had when he shares this poem about Christ with us, which is that God has married God's self to matter and to humanity so that we can expect to find God lurking everywhere and perhaps even in everyone. Uh, we talk around here about everyone an icon. Uh, it's an important message for a church that doesn't want to treat anyone like a project. It's an important lesson for a church that wants to be brave about including people who've been excluded. It's an important word for a church that, that knows how important it is that we declare Black Lives Matter. Everyone an icon. Because the first word in scripture about humanity is that we bear the image of God. Now, what's, what's tricky about this is everyone an icon can become a really powerful ethical vision but, but I'm saying it's more than an ethical vision, and hopefully you've heard us teach this. It's also a mystical vision. Like, it's not just that we have an equation in our head that says human being equals worthwhile or human being equals dignity, although those are very, very true. It's also that, like the practice of actually meditating on religious icons, on those strangely beautiful paintings that you might have seen of sacred figures or of Jesus that you learn to pray with, the point of an icon is to teach you to see God. You almost learn to see into the icon or through the icon to the divine reality that it is trying to point us toward. And for us to preach everyone an icon is to say, we wanna be the kind of people who learn to see God lurking, hiding, calling out to us in everything, and especially uh, in the eyes of our sisters and brothers, and especially in the eyes of our sisters and brothers that we had, would have the easiest time dismissing or abusing or enacting some sort of injustice against. So if you're gonna take Paul seriously and you're gonna take this Christ experience seriously and you're gonna um, wake up and become the kind of person who has the vision to see this God who has taken on human form, not just in, in the life of Jesus, but now is calling out to us and every sister and brother, um, you're gonna notice that moving you powerfully in certain directions. It's gonna um, change the way perhaps you see the headlines or the videos that are coming across your social media feeds. Uh, like you might begin to see God in the face of a protester who is crying out for justice that is hundreds of years overdue. You might uh, stop asking if George Floyd had some kind of criminal record uh, as if that could justify a unilateral execution in the street. And instead you might look uh, for the image of God there in the man with the knee on his neck. Um, this is not just an ethic, it's actually a, a, a mysticism, it's a spirituality, it's a way of seeing something true in the world that a lot of us are very blind to, and I've been blind to in all sorts of ways. It's a way of sensing the depth that is within everything that you might think is one-dimensional or shallow. And when you see the depth and the dignity and the love that's called for in a world that God has married God's self to, the devotion that's called for in a world that God has married God's self to, uh, it, it has a, a, an urgent relevance, especially when the world is breaking and burning. Uh, it's interesting. Um, 
one of the uh, phrases in the passages that we're looking at here in chapter two, Paul talks about Timothy, his friend. And depending on the translation, you might not track down where this is at, but in verse two, chapter two, verse 20, when he refers to Timothy, he actually uses a phrase which means that he is same-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, same-souled, that there is an affinity between our souls. Now, I don't know how you think about the soul or if you believe in the soul or what you think the soul is, and sometimes we talk about the soul as a thing, but I think you could also talk about the soul as a capacity. And for this moment, I would suggest that the soul is, among other things, the capacity we have within us to sense the deepest frequencies around us. And so to say that he and Timothy experience a kind of same soul relationship is to suggest that the deepest parts of Paul are tuned into the deepest parts of Timothy, that that whatever the deepest, fullest, biggest truth is about each of these persons, not the surface, not the superficial, not the one-dimensional, not the labels, but the depth of each person and the frequency that they meet one another on. Same soul, because if, if you discover God lurking and hiding within everything, God who has given God's self to us freely, God who has married God's self to flesh and blood in the incarnation, then you might discover that the depths within you are looking for the depths within others and, and finding them. Same soul, everyone an icon. This is the mystery of Christ that we are being invited into. Uh, and when I think about same soul and everyone an icon and whether this matters, whether it's worth it, um, I think this week, especially uh, about one of those same souled friends, uh, a beloved man named Dwayne. Uh, if you've been a part of our church, uh, you might know Dwayne. You might know Dwayne for uh, him playing bass on our stage with the band during gatherings, uh, often quite cheery while he did it. Sometimes he would almost bounce up there while he played. You might know Dwayne uh, for being on the greeter team, or you might know Dwayne for how uh, enthusiastically he has shared some of his story with our community. And if you heard that story, you might remember that a couple of years ago, Dwayne didn't have uh, a home or a place to live. And it was winter time, and so he was taking advantage of the weather amnesty program that we at SBCC, along with a lot of other community partners, uh, try to support. And one night, uh, Dwayne was there taking advantage of the warmth and the shelter, and he made friends with a member of our uh, church family. And uh, he and Leslie just, they struck up a friendship. And Leslie's a person who has a really uh, beautiful capacity for this vision that we've been talking about, to see uh, everyone an icon, not just as an ethic, but to, to actually see how God might be lurking within the lives of our neighbors. And so they become friends, and Leslie invites Dwayne to church, and Dwayne quickly uh, finds a sense of home and family uh, with this community right here. And when I think about what makes uh, a Thursday night or a Sunday morning special, um, his face is often one of the first that comes to mind. Uh, one week, Dwayne, uh, while he still didn't have a home, he's on our greeter team and he's passing a basket around for the offering. And he bumps into Craig. And Craig and Dwayne are old friends who haven't seen each other in years. And uh, they played music together back in the day. And Craig checks in on Dwayne and asks what he's been up to or where he's been. And Dwayne tells him, I'm living under the bridge. And Craig says, no, you're not. And so Dwayne moves in with Craig and uh, they spend a while living together and um, become an encouragement to each other. And uh, I tell you all this, first of all, because like I don't know it in the normal path of my life and the patterns that are set in the world as we have it. I don't know that I ever get to meet Dwayne. 
I don't know that I ever get to be friends with Dwayne. I don't know that I ever get to learn from Dwayne or be encouraged by his spirit. Uh, I don't know if I get to help Dwayne find the same black skinny jeans that I like to wear because he wanted us to be twins for a little while, but I did. Um, and, uh, and we lost Dwayne this week. Um, Dwayne passed away uh, just a day ago. And uh, I've been very, very sad about that. And I know a lot of us have been. Um, but I'm so glad that I had the privilege of experiencing friendship with Dwayne, uh, of learning from what in some ways was different life experience than my own, but in other ways we had plenty in common, of seeing him uh, bouncing on the stage while he played bass, or learning about what this city is like for people with a very different experience than my own. I don't know that I would have um, had that unbelievable gift if I had just sort of gone with the patterns as they seem to be. But Christ has called us to resist some of those patterns and to follow Christ into the building and forging of an unlikely community. And so here we find ourselves with uh, sisters and brothers of very different experience in this city from different pockets of the city all, all finding one another as we find God in Christ. And um, when I think about discovering the depth of my friend Dwayne and the mystery of how it is that God has been lurking in his life so that I could meet God in Dwayne. Um, and when I think about what a gift he was uh, to everyone who met him, um, and I think back to Jay uh, in high school at that campfire, thinking for a moment that this Christ mystery and the way that it gets fleshed out in everyday community, thinking for a moment it might be worth it, but then, then uh, running away from that, fearing that it's not. It makes me wanna like run back in time and grab Jay by the shoulders and say, if what we are talking about is, is the encounter that God has given us in Christ, through which God has married God's self to this world and to our sisters and brothers, our neighbors and our enemies. And that because of that, then there is this magnetism that might actually draw us toward one another, especially across the lines of the division that are the deepest and the darkest in our world. Then I think, especially in this moment when the world is breaking and burning along those lines of division, like what could be worth more than this mystery that we have been given? What can matter more than pursuing the mystery of Christ together, you and me. And so I know during COVID, we can't be together every week like we want to be. And yet, even though I've had days of uh, frustration and sadness and loss during COVID, um, I'm reminded again today, like how could this not matter? Like how, how would we not wanna give ourselves to this mystery because of the possibilities that it creates in the world, the possibility of God and the possibility of finding God in our sisters and brothers. So uh, this week of COVID, friends, uh, may you know the mystery of Christ, that God and God's great love for us has not just created this world and lent existence to this world, but God has taken on flesh and blood, that God might be married to humanity, uh, incarnate in Jesus, but also in our sisters and brothers, our neighbors and our enemies. May we hear the beauty and the calling of that mystery that we would live in harmony at the deepest frequencies, especially with those uh, whom we find ourselves across lines of division and hate. Uh, may we be brave and obedient um, 
surrendering everything for the sake of this mystery and for the world that it calls us to. And may grace and peace be with you.